Go ahead and begin with prayer. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather one more time and just muse upon your word in this letter to the Hebrews. Ask that you would um, write your law in our hearts, that we would know you as, as you've promised, as we'll go over today. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and let us see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so there are two more weeks. This is the fourth, fourth of five, and the plan is to get through the middle of chapter 10 next week. This, uh, where we're at, where we left off was the end of chapter 7, and we're at eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8 is a short one. Chapter 9 is not. We'll try to get through halfway through chapter 9 today now. And then actually halfway through chapter 10, the final final week. It turns out this is a, a unit anyway. Chapter 8, verse 1 through about 10, um, 18 is all one big unit. And I've got to divide it somewhere in the middle and it's not going to be an even break because he's kind of in the middle of his, the author will be right in the middle of his, the main point that he's going to drive at, and we'll just have to say, oh, put it on pause and come back to the final week. But that's what he's doing. What, he, what he's done up until now, in the first chapters 5, 6, and 7, was explain that Jesus is a great high priest. Why? Why is he such a great high priest? Now, now he's going to say, okay, that's all great. He's a great high priest, but what does he do? So these chapters are going to take a deep dive into what is what does this particular high priest do that's better than the Old Testament priest. We already know he's better by virtue of the fact he's perfect and that he lives forever and he's enthroned at the right hand of God. Okay, he, he is better. What does he do that's better? So let's dive in with chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1 is a nice little summary of where we've come from. Now the point in what we are saying is this, in case you're lost after all I've said in chapter 7, and it's easy to get lost. This is a summary statement. If you take one thing away from chapter 7, 5 and 7, take this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So that first verse is kind of where we, we come from. We have a great high priest where he's seated, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And he's used that phrase, phraseology from chapter 1. If you remember, that was right in the third verse. After you have made purification for sins, after he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the same terminology that's used right here. And he sat down not only as the enthroned son of God, reigning even higher than a king, kind of king-like but better than a king, he's also, we've learned, been declared by an oath to be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, per Psalm 110, verse 4. So Psalm 110, actually, you can, argue, you can make an argument that Psalm 110 is 
like the big high outline of the book. There's verse 1, which was talked about in the early chapters, which is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That was the enthronement. And in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's what he's just been through. Now, what does he do? What does he do? He's a minister, verse 2. A minister in the holy places in the true tent. It's the Lord set up, not man. So, he's a minister in the, in the holy places. That's interesting that he uses the plural. And he'll, he'll explain why soon. But he's in what's called the true tent. The true tent. The real tent. Because he's going to make a point coming up next that the old covenant priests were serving in tents and they were serving in holy places, plural, two of them, the holy place and the most holy place. But by calling this one that Jesus is in the true tent, he's implying something about the ones on earth. They're not the true tent or something not so true about them. He's going to explain that next. And here's where he goes. The first three and four and five. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, which he's said a few times before in this book. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Nice little... It's like, okay, if the old priests were offering stuff, what's this great high priest offer? He has to offer something too. And if you notice, he really hasn't talked about that offering at all. At all. He's only been talking about how awesome Jesus is, his character. And the fact that God swore an oath over him and put him up there and that he lived a perfect life to basically earn the right to be the great high priest. But what does he do? Well, he's got to bring an offering like these other priests did. So it's kind of interesting how he says it. Every priest has got to have something to bring, so what does this one do? For this priest also must have something to offer. And then he's going to compare what... He's going to go back to the old priest, verse 4. Now if he were on earth, which he's not, he's in heaven, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer, basically there already are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Don't need another one of them. There's plenty of them. They've been doing it for 1,500 years. So he wouldn't be a priest at all. So the distinction is he's a priest in heaven, in the true tent. These other priests are on the earth in some other kind of tent, which he's about to describe. Verse 5. This is where, what he calls the tent on the earth. They, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to create the tent, erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, and this is a quote from Exodus 25.40, I believe, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And that's a verse 
that the author seizes upon to say, you see, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments first, and then he received this instruction in chapter 25. Chapter 20 of Exodus is the Ten Commandments. Chapter 25 is, is the, okay, I want you to build a tent. And he makes a comment. Make it like the pattern I showed you on the mountain. A pattern of what? So the implication here is, God gave him a pattern, like a blueprint, of how to build this thing, but it's also what he is having him build, this tabernacle on earth, these tents on earth, is a copy and a shadow of the real deal. It's a model of what the real tent looks like. There's all, there was always a real tent in heaven, a real place where God dwells, a real throne, and you're to make something that represents it on earth according to my instruction. So, by making that statement and seizing upon that one statement in Exodus 25, verse 40, which is right in the middle of this blueprint description of this tent and all the stuff that's in this tent where these priests are going to serve, he basically says, he calls out and says, that's just a copy in a shadow. Copy in a shadow, not the real tent. It's not the true tent. The true tent's in heaven. The copy in the shadow is on earth. The true tent has a priest. The copy in the shadow have priests. So he's, he's essentially saying this whole thing that God set up in Exodus is just a model, a small-scale model of the real deal. And it's for our instruction so we can get a better idea of what the real tent is like if we look at these, this old covenant tent described in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and we can glean from it and, and get a better appreciation for the real tent. That's, that's what he's driving at here. And it's also interesting because this verse, the copy in the shadow of the heavenly things, kind of explains a little bit of what he's been doing throughout the whole book. He's been presenting Jesus' the better, better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's the better priest. Now he's going to be the better, he's going to be the mediator of a better covenant. And the better means the true, and the not so better is the copy in the shadow that foreshadows the better, the, the real thing. So like the angels, he's better than the angels. The angels kind of do God's work. They speak for God, but they're, Jesus is better than that. He's the son. Moses. Moses came out. He, he took the people of God and he ministered in the house of the people of God. But Jesus is better. He actually built the house. Just I'm referring to stuff in, in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then we've just been through this whole thing about Jesus is a better high priest after a better order of Melchizedek. The other priests, they have to, they're weak and they're limited in what they can do. And now he's just making this point clear. This whole Old Testament setup was just a type in the shadow of the better, the better that's coming. So verse 6 and 7 and 8 and beyond. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates 
is better since it is enacted on better promises. So there, now he's going to take the argument. Not only is Christ a better priest, he has a better ministry because he's enacting a better covenant on better promises. The whole idea is he's better, better, better. Better priest, better ministry, better covenant, and better promises. And then, to make his case, as always, he's going to appeal to an Old Testament text. Just to, to reassure us that he's not making this up. And we found the text in Exodus that said, type and shadow, make it after the type and shadow. Now he's going to find one that says, there's actually a better covenant, a better covenant in place. And he finds that in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31. And if you look in your Bibles, most, well, especially extended quotes in the Bible, in the New Testament, tend to be offset in this little poetic-looking stuff indents and kind of like the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, how the Psalms are all indented back and forth, they're poetic. Well, prophecies are poetic, but when he's quoting, he makes this little indented section and says, here it is. And notice that this indented section goes from verse chapter 8, verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. That is a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It happens to be the longest direct quote by a New Testament author in the New Testament. There is no longer quote of anything. It's just, just, he just took Jeremiah and said, here's what Jeremiah said. I didn't make this up. Jeremiah said it. And this is what Jeremiah said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. New covenant. So Jeremiah is promising a day in the future that there's going to be a new covenant, and it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's essentially identical to what Jeremiah 31 says. It's actually a quote of the Greek translation of that, so you might look back and go, oh, there's a couple words that are different. That's because he's, he's lifting a Greek translation and putting it into his Greek text. But he just, just lays it out there. And... What's interesting is he doesn't really spend much time, if any, explaining it, which is unusual because we know that he likes to take verses and exposit them like he did last week. You were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He spent a whole chapter telling us what that one verse meant. He's not going to spend much time explaining this, and I believe part of the reason is 
it's kind of self-explanatory. It doesn't need a whole lot of exposition. It's pretty clear. God's going to bring a new covenant. And he actually tells them why he needs to bring a new covenant. Because the old covenant was weak. It was faulted. It had issues. It had problems. And I'm going to look, since I'm kind of not paying attention to my notes and flying through here, I'm going to look at my notes and make use of them. Um, The first covenant was faulted, I say on page two. I'm going to make some comments about this. Basically, I'm making the comments because the author doesn't make any, so I'm going to try to make some of my own, which may or may not be helpful. So it says the first covenant was faulted, the better covenant. Why is Christ's covenant better? He's got the better ministry. That's kind of from what we've already seen in Hebrews. He mediates this covenant. By the way, I got a little definition of mediation. What does that word mean? Mediation means to stand between and resolve a disagreement between two parties. The mediator is kind of like the legal go-between, getting them to talk. And the idea is God has a say in this. Man has a say in this. And a mediator needs to get the two together and talk and agree and get them to make peace between them. So that's the idea. Christ is going to mediate. He's going to bring a brand new covenant, which is a necessary agreement between God and man, not because um, God and man get along so well, but precisely because they don't. Man is sinful and corrupt. God is perfect and can't stand sin. There's a problem here. A covenant needs to be drawn up to allow the two parties to be at peace and to work together, for lack of a better term, to be on the same page and to cooperate with one another. And that's kind of the idea of this covenant. And there was an old covenant, which was enacted in Exodus, and he's going to get to that more in chapter 9, which had flaws. And here are the flaws. It was faulted. The first covenant refers to the Sinai covenant, as I just mentioned, inaugurated at Sinai in Exodus 24. If you actually read Exodus 24, 3 through 8, it'll use covenant terminology. I'm going to quickly read that. Just in case you never thought of Sinai as being a covenant. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, And he comes in verse 3 of chapter 24 and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the front of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings, <coughs> sacrificed peace offerings to Oxen, to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So this is covenant, this, this is how you're going to relate to God. So it was And then verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he's establishing the covenant. And 
The author of Hebrews is going to talk about that in great detail coming up here in chapter 9. But just so you know, that's the old covenant that's being talked about. And Jeremiah promises a new and better covenant because it's flawed. And the reason it's flawed is because the fathers did not continue in it. As it says, Jeremiah says that actually. He says, and it's quoted for us in chapter 8. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I just read you that essentially in Exodus. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The word continue there would probably better be translated persevere. It makes a little more sense, I think. They did not persevere in my covenant. They didn't do what they said they were going to do. Because they said, I just read it to you back in Exodus. All these words will do. And of course they didn't. They didn't do hardly any of them. So they did not persist. They did not persevere in, those, in that covenant agreement. And God, as a provision of the covenant, stopped caring for them and eventually judged them. And their bodies fell in the wilderness. Those people who made that promise that day not one of them, well, all but two of them, only two of them made it to the promised land. Eventually, God gets fed up with them being led astray. And as chapter 3 of Hebrews quoted for us, he swears in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In Psalm 95, which explains what God did. He got to a point where, okay, I'm done with them. And he actually swears an oath, uses another oath, that the author of Hebrews uses the swear language again, like we talked about last week. God actually swears, they're not going in. I swear they're not going in. It's impossible for them to repent. <clears throat> which I think is also why he says it's impossible to repent in chapter 6. Because there comes a point when these people who are supposedly agreed to the covenant just refuse to persevere and refuse to continue in it, there comes a point where God does, and only God knows when this is, but God says, I swear, that person shall not enter my rest. Which is what the, makes the warning of chapter 6 so scary. It's impossible if you get to a certain point, And only God knows when that point is. He's, he's, he's got an oath going. Just like he made an, an oath to get Jesus on the throne as a high priest, he's made an oath, you're not entering my rest. Well, the problem with the old covenant is, none of them made it in, except for Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two who actually got to see the promised land. Every other, every other one of them, including Moses and Aaron even, their bodies fell in the wilderness, as it says in Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 earlier. So it's a flawed covenant. So, what is the difference? What is the new covenant? It's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, it's made with Jewish people is what you say, and, and it was. Jeremiah was spoken to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that's easy for the author of Hebrews to say because he's writing to Hebrews who happen to be of the house of Judah and the house of Israel. But thankfully, Paul also tells us that all who have the faith of Abraham are grafted in. So even we Gentiles... 
or the house of Israel and house of, house of Judah. We've been grafted in by faith like, like Abraham. So it includes everyone who holds fast by faith. And he promises, well, we'll just list these promises. He lists them in verse 10 through 12. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Number one, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's the first one. Which he didn't do in the Old Covenant. He's going to write them on their hearts. In the Old Covenant, he wrote them on tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments, right? And the Ten Commandments were put in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, which nobody could get to, except for one priest once a year. So where he writes the laws is different. He writes it on their hearts and in their minds. Now, how... (laughs) What does this look like, I guess? How is this done? How can God get his law and his heart and his law into our minds and our hearts? And I just want to say that Hebrews has already suggested, already shown us how he does that. In the first few chapters, we were commanded to consider Jesus as an apostle who brings the word. And in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13... There's this very famous text about how effective the word of the Apostle Jesus is. Back in chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom... We must give an account. Now that sounds like uh, the word is engraving our heart, cutting our heart, exposing our heart, exposing our thoughts, our intentions of our heart. That sounds like, that's, I think that's a good description of what it means to have your, the law of God written on your heart. As the word of God comes, living and active, and cuts right to the core of your heart, exposes your need, as we saw earlier, for for, for forgiveness for the great high priest. The word of the apostle comes to our heart, and we really, really, really see and understand. We're really convicted of our need for mercy and grace and whatever the great high priest can give us. So I believe that's, that's how that promise was fulfilled, and the author talked about it talked about in the first four chapters. That's just the first promise. The next promise, the end of verse 10 there, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Which sounds like God will own them and they will own God. It's speaking of a direct relationship with God. I belong to you, you belong to me which really, the Old Covenant didn't quite have that relationship. And that'll be exposed as we get to chapter 9. That's the second promise. 
The third promise, all shall know me from the least to the greatest. This knowledge is gained by communion, by being with God, by being owned by God, by spending time with God. And it makes possible, it's, this is made possible because Christ has mediated a work and enabled the two of us to get together. God and us can commune. God speaks the word. It exposes our need for the great high priest. And we reach out and draw towards him and help. And when we do that, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we consider Jesus, and we fix our thoughts on Jesus, as the author has commanded us to do early on, you get to know him. Little by little, you get to know him. You get to know him better. And better and better. And it's available to the least. This access, I'm going to use the word access, I think that's the key word here. This access to God was never available in the Old Covenant. Never available. That will become clear in chapter 9. He has made a way for the least of us to access God and get to know Him that was never there before. And that will be shown clearly in chapter 9. And then finally, the best of all, verse 12 of chapter 8, which you'll also get to, but not today, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I'm going to deal with their sin. I'm going to show mercy. Remember, Jesus was called the merciful high priest back in chapter 2, the merciful and faithful high priest who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. That's chapter 2, verse 17, when he first just threw it out there to whet our appetites for what's coming. We've already shown Jesus as a faithful high priest because he's interceding forever and ever. This chapter is going to show us that he's a merciful high priest. Chapter 9 is going to show us he's a merciful high priest who forgives our sin. And he forgives our sin in such an incredible way that the way it's worded here, and I will remember their sins no more. That is hard to believe because God knows everything. He's omniscient. And yet God promises to not remember our sins anymore. It's like, wow, that's pretty extensive. For a God who actually knows we sin and can't technically, should never forget, he chooses to not remember him anymore, somehow by this covenant. But we have to leave that, because he's not going to explain that till the end of chapter 9, which, as I said, I won't get to until next week. But those other promises I just mentioned, the I will be their God and they shall know me promises, the access, the promise of access and ownership, we will get to. He's going to explain, he's going to show how that works out in chapter 9. And in the last verse of chapter 8, a nice little <laughs> summary in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. This, is, this, this would have been controversial to the original hearers who have only known the old covenant all their lives. They're Jews, remember. They're still 
many of these believers may still be participating in the Jewish sacrifices, the rites that they were raised in. They were really never told to stop doing it. But now he's saying, you don't really need that. Do you see this is a new covenant? It's better. And I'm going to show you that it's better. And he makes the statement, the first one, it makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's about to go away on you. And this is a fascinating little statement here because scholars believe Hebrews was penned around 65 AD. And we know from history that the temple in Jerusalem, the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD, five years later, about five years later. And once that temple was destroyed, that's where the sacrifices were made. That's where the high priests were. That's where the Holy of Holies was. This old covenant symbology. The Romans leveled it. And it's never been restored. It's never been built. So, in effect... <laughs> The Jewish people lost the ability to do what Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers require, the ritual sacrifices and washings and all that stuff that's in those books. They've not been able to do that since then. So they significantly had to modify how they practice their faith after that because they couldn't do what it said. It was, it was literally abolished. And hasn't come back. And it's interesting, the author kind of says that in verse 13. Oh, by the way, guys, it's, it's obsolete. The new covenant's way better. And that old covenant is about to pass away. And then certainly it's essentially the way to... They can't enact, they can't do the sacrifices anymore. It actually goes. But it's useful for us and it remains remains in our Bibles and it remains as, as a, a point to look at and learn from. Remember, God said it was just a type and a shadow. It was there to help us appreciate the true tent, what Jesus has done. All that stuff in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers is so hard to read through and so hard to understand. God set it up as a picture to help us and everyone who comes to faith better appreciate Jesus as a great high priest and what he's accomplished. So now let's get into chapter 9. Which goes into the detail of this old, old tent in the first 10 chapters. And I won't, I, I don't have, I won't spend a ton of time on this, but it's just a pick. He's going to go through it quickly too. Now even the first, I'm going to read it. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. An earthly place, notice, on the earth. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. That one was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So there's two holy places. They're in a tent. And they have these pieces of furniture. The second place has the golden altar of incense, the most holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And I love verse 5, because I'm going to plead and hold on to this right now. 
Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That last phrase. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. If I spoke in detail, we wouldn't get through this. And, that, and it's the author's point. I can't go into detail. But he is inviting us to go ponder what those different pieces of furniture might mean and symbolize. And I actually listed a bunch of stuff here that I'm not going to go over in detail of certain things are in one place and certain things in the other. Now, the one, one thing I will bring out that I think is spectacular is this, this mercy seat in the whole, most holy place. I do want to make a comment here because the word for mercy seat that the author uses in his text is the propitiation. It's literally the propitiation. It's not the mercy seat. It wouldn't be translated the mercy. It would be translated the propitiation. But it clearly corresponds, the way he describes it, to what the Old Testament said was the mercy seat <clears throat> with cherubim overshadowing it. And the implication in the Old Covenant was that's where God sits. He dwells in that seat. Or somebody should be dwelling in that seat. And it's the place of propitiation. According to the word that the author of Hebrews chose to use to describe it. And also, it's a seat. Yeah. And remember, God said, sit at my right, sit at my right hand to the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So what if it's Jesus? What if that mercy seat symbolizes the place where Jesus sits? In the true tent. Notice the true tent. This is just a copy, a shadow. Somebody's supposed to sit there and dispense mercy well, we know who that is now. Begin to see it. Oh, 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 sit, 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 sit down. Jesus, my son, sit down. You're a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Sit down and do your priestly bidding. Notice he's sitting too. The priests in the old covenant were never sitting. They were always busy, busy, busy. I gotta change the oil and the lines. I gotta put the bread on the bread of the table. I gotta sprinkle blood on this guy. I gotta sprinkle water on that guy. I gotta. They're busy, busy. They're never sitting. They're never, ever, ever sitting. This high priest is sitting. He's seated, and he's he's actually sitting in the place where nobody's supposed to sit except for God, because it's very clear also from the old covenant that the priests weren't allowed to go in there but once a year, and he actually says that. He says that here. Um, in verse uh, 9, 6, 7, verse 6 of chapter 9. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. Busy, 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 ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, so that's an explanation, a picture. There's one guy who goes in there and he has to take blood for himself because he doesn't belong in there. He needs a covering himself. He can't stay in there for long. If you read the text in the Old Testament, I've actually listed in the notes where you can go and read about all these pieces of furniture and all these duties. Exodus 25 is kind of the go-to where he describes most of them, the Ark of the Covenant and everything. But... The priest who goes in there is supposed to have a little rope tied around his leg in case God strikes him dead. 
so they can pull him out without going in themselves. I mean, he's not supposed to be in there. He's only in there for a brief period of time. And he gets out quickly because he, he, it's, no, he might die. God could say, like he, did, he actually did kill a couple priests as an example. Nadab and Abihu. You can read about that too. God consecrates the family of Aaron and his two sons. And Aaron gets consecrated. Nadab and Abihu get consecrated, but they don't. They offer strange fire. They don't do it the way they're supposed to. And God just said, Dad, you're gone. It's like, whoa. It puts a lot of fear in people. So there, there's a reason they had a rope tied around. Just like, let's pull the dead bodies out. There's a big difference. We have a high priest who's seated in there. Seated in there. And the, this, is, this is where the access comes into play, guys. <laughs> it's very clear from the Old Testament, that these two holy places only priests could go into. No one else was allowed to go in there. And priests make up less than 1% of the populace, okay? Only priests can go in the, in the holy place, and then only one of the priests can go into the most holy place for one day for less than an hour, a year. Access to the mercy seat is very, very, very restricted. And the biggest, well, the big difference that the new priest has made for us is we have access. We have access. We all have access from the least to the greatest. We all have access to get to know him, all of us. Huge difference between the old and the new covenants. This priest has provided a way to enter the most holy place where he's seated. As we draw near to him, as we hold fast to him, as we consider him, we get to know him on a very personal level, like Jeremiah described in those promises back in Jeremiah 31. And now the little um, verse 8, interesting statement. I want to try to explain some of these last verses, 8 through 10. By this, okay, he's just described these two tents and these priests busily doing business but with restricted access. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And I, basically, what I just tried to tell you, the access is the way to think about that. And I like the way it says, the Holy Spirit indicates to us. So that's saying the Holy Spirit is telling us through the symbolic nature of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through that symbol. You see how there was such restricted access back then? The way wasn't there. And he mentions specifically the first section, which is people were maybe confused. Why did he say that? As long as the first section is still standing. Well, what's the first section of the tent? The first one was the holy place. Well, see, they couldn't even get into the holy place, is what he's saying. There was, like, the tent on earth had two sections, one of which the people couldn't even get into the first one, which was then the first step to get into the second one, which only, the restriction is just narrowed down to almost nobody says, as long as that first section is standing, it's, a, it's, a, it's letting us know, 
you guys, the people, the regular folks, don't have a way. Just the first section prevents you from getting to the second section. And I also think what he means by that is the true tent doesn't have that first section. <laughs> the true tent is just Jesus at the mercy seat, wide open. The true tent is, doesn't look the same. It doesn't have this restricted section. It's, it, has, it has where Jesus is seated and the curtain is torn, and there is no first section, and everybody who believes can draw near to him. Everybody, from the least to the greatest. So that's what I believe is being said by verses 8. The Holy Spirit indicates by this symbolic tent, access was restricted. And then it says in 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Here's another interesting statement. What does this mean? They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What in the world is he talking about? Now, when I first read this, I just assumed that means perfect the conscience. It probably has something to do with forgiveness of sins, and sort of does. But the word conscience that was chosen by this author to use here. It's not used very often in, in the New Testament. It's a little different from the word conscious that Paul uses. But this one is, is a, the best way to think about it is, is the ability to distinguish right and wrong. It's the ability to distinguish good and evil. And what he's saying here is this first covenant was unable to purify that conscience was unable to bestow upon the worshipers who were the priests the worshiper means the priest the people who were busily working it couldn't even give them the ability to discern right from wrong but somehow the new covenant does the new covenant listening purifies the conscience so the conscience can clearly see right from wrong okay Now, back in chapter 5, when Paul was rebuking these folks, remember how he called them immature, sluggish kids? He did say something interesting at the end of that, well, in the middle of the rebuke, but it's the end of chapter 5, verse 14. You need milk, solid foods for the mature, For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The mature are able to distinguish good from evil by practice. And they grow. The mature, I believe, are the ones that have their consciences cleansed and act upon it and use it to discern good and evil. Yes, Jesus cleanses our conscience when we're regenerated, he gives us the ability to see good and evil and distinguish it. Basically, we know good because if we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, our thoughts fixed on Jesus, if we're considering Jesus and drawing near to Jesus and holding fast to Jesus, we know what good is because he's it. He's the, he's the paramount goodness. 
He's righteous. We know what good is. And when evil crops up, it's not him or not in accordance with him. We know that ain't good. That must be evil. And the way we train our senses with our clear conscience to mature is we discern, oh, that's, that's not right. This is right, because that's where Je- that's Jesus-like. It's very, very Jesus, Jesus. This is very not. I will hold fast to this, and I will draw near to this, and I will continue to do that, and I will continue to do that, and through practice, I'll have my senses trained to discern good from evil, and I'll mature. So I believe that's what the conscience is referring to here. It's not so much... Uh, purification of sin but the ability to discern good and evil and choose the good and follow hard after God the old covenant didn't provide that the new covenant does and it will actually say that Um, verse 11 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come And I like that, have come. They're already here, guys. Might surprise you. (laughs) The good things have already come in Christ. He'll use that terminology later and continues to. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, the one God set up in heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places. He uses that word once for all. That's... He's used that once before in regards to sin in chapter 7, verse 27. He said, I'll just read it quickly. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So he once for all offers up himself in chapter 7, verse 27, which he's going to go into great and glorious detail later in chapter 9. But here he's, he's entering once for all. It doesn't say he's doing it for sin. It says he's entered once for all. Which implies that he hasn't come out. He, he did it once. Not once a year, but once. And he's still seated there, guys. Still seated there. This is the difference between the new and the old. He, he comes in once for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, which is his own blood is going to be talked about in more detail soon. But here's there's two things he's the author brings to our point to our attention right here. First, the first thing it talks about, he secures an eternal redemption in the end of chapter 12, or verse 12. He secures an eternal redemption. And in verse 14 it says, He purifies our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. These are the two things the high priest has brought. Two of the three things. The third thing is forgiveness of sins. We'll talk about that next. But he's talking about the redemption. He brings, secures redemption and remember, redemption, now what is redemption? We have an, uh, we think redemption means um, things that it really doesn't mean in Scripture. 
especially when it comes to sports teams. People can redeem themselves by making a spectacular play. That's nobody redeems themselves in the old in the, in the Bible. Nobody can. The only person that can redeem you is someone who has a claim on your life. Not you, someone else buys you back from that crisis situation, whether you're in slavery or you're a prisoner of war. Christ's blood redeemed us, made an re eternal redemption. He bought us. He made us his own. We now belong to him. And he belongs to us. Hence, going back to Jeremiah's statement, I shall be their God. They shall be my people. Why? Because I redeemed them. Christ redeemed them, made them, owns them. And then this purification of conscience, I've already, I've already kind of told you how that looks. I've already made that point. But he's got a means of purifying our conscience. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice, purified our conscience so we can discern good and evil and we will avoid the dead works and we will now serve God. That was what I was explaining to you earlier, right? The mature have their senses trained to discern good and evil. To No, that's a dead work. I'm going to stay away from that. I want to serve the living God. That's Jesus. I want to do the right thing. So this conscience idea is, I think, comes home for us in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And in verse 15, which I'm going to pick up next week, but it's a summary statement of what we just said. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. It's the summary of everything I just talked about. He brings this new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And that's, that's the final promise of the new covenant that he's going to get into the rest of chapter 9. He's talked about he owns us, we're his. He's talked about we have the means of getting to know him from the least to the greatest. We have the access and the ability to discern good and evil and stay on, draw near to God, hold fast to God, and avoid the dead works. That's, he's talked about that. What's coming next is this forgiveness of sin and this, I will remember their sins no more. And that will take up all of next week. That one key, highest, most important, I will say the theological peak of Hebrews coming next week. I said something last week when I was going through Hebrews 7, when I got to Hebrews 7.25, I said this is my favorite verse in the book of Hebrews. Remember that? It was that he always lives to make intercession for me. Love it. Love it. It's all about me. Well, it's not really. But I, I love it because oh, I, that makes me feel special. It, he's able to save me, because I'm wretched, to the uttermost, and he's able to intercede for me forever. My favorite verse. As I've studied Hebrews for now 30, 40 years, 
I think what's coming up is the most important section of Hebrews next week. And I even have a verse in that section that I would like to make the statement that I think it's God's favorite verse. <laughs> God's favorite verse in the book of Hebrews. <laughs> from his perspective. Not from mine, from his. So you can come back next week and we can figure out what that is and study it and mull over it. Any questions? Clarification in Luke one, when Zechariah was by lot drawn to go into the temple and offer sacrifices, he went to the holy place, not the holy of holies. Yeah, he wasn't the high priest, so he couldn't have, couldn't have. Yes, yeah, so Zechariah would have been called into the holy place, and only he could go because he was yeah. a priest. Yeah. Well, I thought it was the one time a year that the priest could go in. Which, which makes sense because only priests can go in. So there's restricted access to the holy place too for the rest of us. Anything, any other comments, questions? Just wanted to bait it, bait you for next week. Got to come back next week. God's favorite, God's favorite. A little bit of a teaser. Yeah. All right, let me, let me pray and we'll close it out. Lord, thank you. Thank you very much for mediating a much better covenant for us and providing access for the least of us to be able to draw near to your throne unhindered without the need of an earthly priest and to purify our consciences so that we can see you for who you really are and we can discern what's good and evil and we can not do the evil and we can run towards you and do the good. Lord God, please... Help us do that. Help build our faith through these truths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.